Diana, and I love printing and design, typography and branding, books and publishing. I've traveled the world learning about trends to share with my students and with my readers. But I haven't forgotten where I started, writing papers about paper on paper. And now, I've created a podcast to share what I know with you. So, let's talk paper scissors. final episode in the MAGS 2022 miniseries, you will hear from Steph Beveridge, account manager at Hemlock Printers in Vancouver, BC. In this conversation, Steph explains the types of magazines Hemlock prints and the ways in which small niche publications are growing their audiences. Steph shares a breakdown of typical printing processes for magazines, trends in magazine printing, including size, paper, and finish, as well as actionable tips for designing with print in mind. She shares the big challenge for the printing industry right now, unique advertising opportunities for publishers, as well as the economics of niche magazine publications. Finally, Steph describes the reasons she got into this field and her biggest takeaways from having studied at TMU. This is a recording of TMU's magazine production and publishing class in spring 2022. Please excuse the quality of my audio in this episode as I recorded this final class from a hotel room in New York City without my mic that makes me sound so good. Let's listen in. All right. Welcome, Steph. Hi, Steph. Hello. Hello. Okay. So Steph is here to round out our course and fill in the gaps as it relates to print production because as you'll hear in a second, she is a print production master. So uh, we'll hear all about that from her uh, in just a second. So maybe that's a good place to start. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are and who you work for? Yeah, so my name is Steph, I use she, her pronouns, and I work for Hemlock Printers. So we're a BC-based company. We're on the traditional territories of the Hunkaminum and Squamish-speaking peoples. And we're a commercial printer. They were founded over 50 years ago. Um, it's still a family-run business and really strong values in integrity, quality, and sustainability. That's probably the biggest things that Hemlock is known for is really being um, a sustainable printer. We were the first in the Pacific Northwest to be FSC certified, and we were the first printer in Canada to be carbon neutral in, I want to say it was 2009, like way before it was trendy. Wow, I didn't know that. That's great. Yeah, I had no idea even when I got hired there, really, that I was getting myself into working for such a good company. And yeah, I was that's... a student of Diana's um, at TMU, I guess it was seven or eight years ago now. And then yeah. I got this job with Hemlock out of job fair. It's been a while. It's been a while, but it's so neat to see uh, how your career has grown in those, those seven or so years since, uh, since you graduated. So today's discussion is all about magazine production. And I would love, love, love for you to share just more about what Hemlock does in the realm of print production and magazines and publication printing and, and kind of what that all looks like. Yeah, so Hemlock specifically is a sheet fed offset printer different than a web printer. Um, 
for context, a web printer would print more of those traditional like newsstand magazines that you might see like people and the ones you would see at the grocery store. Um, Hemlock does more sort of niche high-end boutique type magazines, um, still similar printing techniques, um, CMYK, cyan, magenta, yellow, and black, the primary um, process colors used to print them. Um, but we're, we see a lot more, the quality is higher and they're not as ad driven. Some of them do have some ads, but a lot of it, the, it's paid for by the cover price of the magazine. Um, and we also see a lot of really specific um, it's not such a broad, you know, just lifestyle or design. It's really specific interests. Um, this one's interesting. It's Racket Magazine. It's about tennis. And they're on, this is issue 19. And they started as a Kickstarter. I want to say it was probably three or four years ago. Um, Kickstarter seems to work well uh, to gauge interest in these, you know, smaller communities that have these really special interests. And then they get their Kickstarter subscribers raise the funds to publish their first issue. And then once the interest is there, once they have their first issue, they can keep um, rolling forward. Um, we're also seeing a lot, this one's Hodinkee. Um, it's a watch magazine for like super high-end, I don't know anything about watches, but super high-end fancy watches. Um, and then this one's one of my favorite, Drift Magazine. It's all about coffee and they explore different um, cities around the world. So this most recent issue is volume 12 and it was Paris, but they've done Los Angeles, Melbourne. Um, they travel all over the world and feature different cities and the sort of coffee scene there. So you can see that it's really, really specific interests in the magazines that we print. That's super, super neat. And thanks for showing us those magazines. And I, I particularly like the Kickstarter uh, kind of tip that you gave because that's such a really great way if we think back to the first module of this course in the business of magazines diversifying the way that that a magazine is able to bring in and finance the money needed uh, to actually to, to produce and print the magazine uh, can sometimes be a challenge so even thinking about putting the feelers out on a platform like Kickstarter, that's such an interesting thing that that you see the other side of it when it's a successful Kickstarter and it's actually able to be printed. Yeah, and I also love, I love that coffee magazine. What a great concept. I wanna, I want to have come up with that concept and travel around the world and taste all the coffees. Right, when you realize that someone else thought of it before you did. Him. Yeah, shoot, <laughs> shoot. So, you mentioned a little bit already that the magazines in your facility are printed sheet-fed offset printing versus web-fed. So just to give everyone a little bit of context, web-fed presses are massive. These are the types of presses that are used to print magazines, that are used, uh, sorry, used to print uh, newspapers, books, and uh, as Steph alluded to, some of the magazines that we would see on grocery store shelves, the, the really kind of highly commercial magazines. But sheet fed printing, maybe can you just tell us a little bit about more about that process and how it works in your facility? Yeah, so it's still a fairly large press, just not anything compared to what a newspaper say would be printed on, but they're a terrible distance, but I want to say like 20 feet long, like it's a, a huge warehouse space, the presses take up huge amounts of space. <coughs> Um, and we have six offset presses in our main press room. There's two of them that we primarily use for 
magazine printing. Um, and what it allows us to do, it takes a huge press sheet. Typically, it's say a 28 by 40 sheet. And there's eight pages printed on one side of the sheet. There's eight print pages printed on the other side of the sheet. And as the sheet goes into the press, it prints the first, um, first side. The paper flips over. It's called perfecting. The paper flips over inside the press and then prints on the other side of the sheet and then comes out at the delivery end of the press. Typically, we're printing magazines on our UV press. So that means that the ink is cured and dried as soon as it reaches the delivery end. Um, we have an eight color LED perfecting press. So to take that even further, it's LED UV light. So it's using a very small amount of energy and a small amount of the light spectrum to cure that ink. So it's dry when it comes out. Um, in conventional ink, you would have to wait for that sheet to dry before you could take it to folding or any more finishing. With the UV printing, it's ready to go. It can go immediately from there over to the folders. Um, it goes from, so it comes off, the press, it goes to the folders and gets folded. So if you would picture again, if you had eight pages on one side, eight pages on the other side, it gets all folded up into a little booklet of 16 pages in a row. And that would be one, the first form of the book or the first 16 pages of the book. And then you could go back to the press, it would reset, put on new plates, change it up and print another form. And you just get sets of 16 pages all the way until you reached your full page count. And then, yeah, they go to the folding equipment and then we have in-house perfect binding equipment. So most of the magazines, almost all the magazines we do are perfect bound. You'll see just a traditional sort of soft cover, glued spine, um, perfect binding. Um, we do also do saddle stitching, but I would say it's not as popular for magazines. I think just about every single one we do is perfect bound. And for anyone who likes to get their nails done, uh, you could think of the UV light. So if you use UV, polish and you stick it under the uv light uh, and it cures instantly or almost instantly that's the same technology that's being used on a printing press and like steph said what that allows for is it cuts down on drying time so all of a sudden we don't have skids and skids and skids of work in process materials floating around waiting to dry we can move them directly from the press to uh as steph said the folder so it just that's yeah thank you for breaking all of that down for us that makes a lot of sense and it's all pretty fast moving high efficiency equipment um, the newest press i want to say can print upwards of ten thousand sheets an hour um, folding is probably the slowest process and then the perfect binder can do up to seven thousand copies per hour so if you and seven thousand is a pretty good run length for us that's a decent um decent size run so if you were do if you even had 20,000 magazines, you could have them bound. There's a lot of steps in between, but the specific only just the binding part of it, you could have it bound in just a few hours. Yeah, it oftentimes we don't even realize when we pick up a magazine off of the newsstand or wherever we get our magazines, how much time and energy and effort goes into the production of one of those. Never mind everything that students are doing in this class as it relates to design or kind of uh, conceptualizing a magazine and then designing it and laying it out and editing and all of the the kind of front end stuff, but then actually the printing can be quite can can be very very involved as well. So yeah, there's a lot of a lot of pieces in the puzzle. Yeah, so you're not home you're not home free just when you submit your files. Exactly, there's there's a lot to it. Now, what trends have you seen lately 
in publication production. And that might be in terms of format or size or materials or design. Like, are there any things that you have seen lately where you're going, oh, okay, that's interesting. Like, I, I can see that, that that's a trend. Yeah, I mean, we see a lot of a lot of the magazines are oversized right now, bigger than eight and a half by 11. Um, this one, I don't know the exact dimensions off the top of my head, but it's quite a large size. It's also quite thick. Um, it's about Porsche cars and they are very expensive because people who drive Porsches want to spend lots of money on their Porsche magazine. Um, but I would say, yeah, shying away from say eight and a half by 11 or some of the smaller digest sizes, we're seeing everything be pretty big. Um, and I'm surprised at how thick, like there's a, people are putting a lot of content into these magazines. I've had clients, you know, start their own magazines and see how much work it is to come up with the content. And I'm just amazed that um, they can push out, you know, 200 pages every single issue. Um, textured covers, I would say, are still pretty trendy. Um, Stipple, it's a um, texture of paper that comes from Nina, um, one of the paper manufactured paper mills. Um, and we use stipple cover for so many of the magazines. People see it, they love it. It, for some reason has, um, it gives like an impression that it's more protective, even though it's just ink on paper. Um, but it just seems to feel really durable. It's just a sort of a raised pebbly texture on the paper. Um, and then people are always trying to find some sort of specialty finish, whether it's a foil stamp, an emboss, a deboss, something that people, I think the point in having a printed magazine is having in your hands and people want it to feel interesting. Mm -hmm. That tactility and that kind of sensory experience, I totally agree is, is really part of the benefit of having a publication printed. Yeah. Yeah. And then, Oh, one other thing that we see in um, quite a, quite a few magazines are doing it now is mixing coated and uncoated paper. Typically, even if I ask somebody like, what kind of paper do you want? I expect them at first to just say, you know, 96 pages of coated paper or uncoated paper. But we're seeing people switch it sort of whether it's halfway through or they'll have most of the magazine be on uncoated paper and then a small section on coated paper, um, mixing it up. And I guess I would say uncoated, just generally printing magazines on uncoated paper is different than newsstand type magazines. We see a lot of printing on uncoated paper. People love the feel. And with UV printing technology, the images can look fantastic. The ink doesn't soak into the paper in the same way that it does maybe on a newspaper. Um, so the UV printing on uncoated paper looks really fantastic. Do you have digital printing capabilities in your facility? We do. We also we use HP Indigo digital presses. Um, and they use sort of a liquid based um, ink that's a little bit different than toner. So it also it gives a comparative comparable look to offset printing the quality still isn't quite as good um but yeah we do digital we don't use it as much for magazines just because the run length tends to be long enough that it's worthwhile to print offset if someone was printing say a 96 page magazine i would say maybe you'd print 300 copies if it was digital and anything else you would move it to the offset press um, so it tends to be more economical to offset print, digital printing allows you maybe to prototype something. You could just do one or two copies um, as like a prototype to do photography, to get a feel of what it would like be like, but with the long-term plan of probably offset printing. That's really interesting to me that your break even or your kind of when to stay digital and when to move offset is around that 300 copy mark. Like that, that seems really low. 
So yeah, can, I don't know, can you speak more to that? Yeah, I mean, it, every single project's different. If it was, you know, just an 11 by 17 poster, we would probably print 1500 of them digitally before mm -hmm. it was worthwhile moving to offset. But with longer documents, um, yeah, I would say sort of that three to 500 range, I'm quoting something right now that's landing, you know, 250 is cheaper digital, 500 is more expensive digital mm -hmm. and is better to go offset. So it's right in that range. Um, <coughs> with the with the offset presses, you get um, economies of scale. So once you're up and running, it hardly costs anything else to run more copies. But the setup cost is really high versus the digital press, the setup is minimal, it's still there for sure, but it's minimal. So it's okay for lower copies, lower quantities of copies, but you're paying per click. So every time that sheet of paper passes through the press and it's laying down cyan, magenta, yellow, and black, you're paying a fee, like a click charge to the manufacturer for the color that's getting put down on that side, piece of paper, one side, the other side, and then traveling through. Um, so that adds up pretty quickly at higher volumes. Um, there are, our digital press is a sheet size of 13 by 19. Um, so you could only fit four pages on one sheet, two on one side and two on the other side. People are getting larger digital presses um, that you could potentially fit eight up um, images that would give you, um, the. it would extend the crossover point so that digital was more efficient for longer runs. And we're, we're always asking management when we get our upgrade. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's so many options now. It's it's pretty um, pretty incredible how it's changed in the last 10, 15, 20 years as it relates to kind of the technology and how good digital looks these days. And I know it's not quite the same thing, but I remember working in book printing, what I guess 12, 13, 14 years ago now, and we had an HP Indigo and we were able to print essentially proof a cover of a book so we could send a customer an exact copy of what they were going to get in the final the final printed production and we could send them that uh, that was printed directly from our digital press just one copy and then we could go ahead and if they said yep we like it the color looks great the finish looks great we could then print a thousand copies of that cover on the exact same machine. Like there was so much flexibility and, and the quality was good enough, even again, kind of 10, 15 years ago to be able to have this flexibility and going back and forth between um, offset and digital because the, the quality was, was so good. Yeah, and I think it's for the most part, the quality is there. There's very few people that are so picky that they would mm. say reject the digital copy. But there are those customers. There, there still are there those very picky customers. There definitely are. And there's some images, some things like on the digital press, um, you lose a lot of the detail in the shadows. Um, so sometimes when we're looking at proofs or looking at something that's been digitally printed, you can just sort of know that once it gets, yes, we're matching the proofs on press, but once it gets to the offset press, you're going to get more details in the shadows that you just can't see on the digital proofs as well. Right. Yeah. Everyone's like... <laughs> snore <laughs> we could talk about this print technology all day we're we're dorky <laughs> like that but we won't we won't but what i want to ask you uh next step is for students in this class when they are thinking about designing their magazines and they're they're probably 60 70 percent of the way through at this point right now 
what considerations do you think they should think about when they're designing their publications specifically for print? So to, to be exported with the intention of going to professional print. Mm -hmm. um, one of the biggest things that I see that say a junior designer struggles with is that you lose some of the content in the middle of the book, like in the spine. Um, so if you have a crossover, hold on, let me find a crossover image. So this image say, um, this is a crossover, it goes across both pages, but the stuff that's right in the center, it gets pinched by the perfect binding. Um, so you don't wanna put anything important there. Or if it was, um, I don't know, if you interviewed a celebrity or something, you wouldn't wanna put their face right in the middle of that because um, it's gonna get squished. And you can, there are ways to compensate for it, but there's not a specific rhyme or reason, like it's not a specific way for me to say, you're gonna lose exactly X amount of that face, compensate for it. It depends on the paint, um, the paper type, the page count, even the glue, um, like depending on the temperature in the room, the glue can be more or less flexible. So the book is gonna open more or less flat. So there's no rule for how much the book is gonna open. So you really wanna make sure that nothing critical is in the middle there. That same would go for um, text going across. If you were, you know, had a huge headline going across, try and have one letter on one side, one letter on the other side, and don't put something across the spine in the middle because you're gonna lose it or it's gonna look awkward. Um, other than that, pretty standard um, design. You wanna make sure that you have really high quality images, ideally 300 DPI or better. Um, you really notice it um, if a picture's grainy, doesn't have high enough resolution. And it's hard now because we spend so much time on our computers where a 72 DPI is sufficient on the computer, but a 72 DPI image at 100% isn't gonna print well um, in an offset um, scenario. So making sure that all of those images are high quality. Great tips, especially about the spine. I hadn't thought of that, but it makes tons of sense. And again, I come from the world of book printing, whereby in most cases, if you're printing a soft cover book, you're not gonna have spreads that, that go across both pages, but that makes total sense as it relates mm. to, uh, to magazine editorial spreads or, or what have you. So what are, kind of thinking about students' projects again, and flipping over from the design to the technical, what are some of the biggest issues that you see when files uh, when files arrive to your facility? So like how can students learn to anticipate and plan to avoid some of these kind of technical challenges that relates to bringing in files, making files ready for print? Yeah, honestly, for the most part, we get really good files. Um, everybody, that most people that we work with are fairly experienced. They send pretty good files. One thing we're always asking for though is bleed, which is one of the most simple basic things. I think it just slips people's mind and people forget about it. And sometimes they've built the files with bleed, but they just haven't, <coughs> sorry, they just haven't exported it properly. So it should have an eighth of an inch bleed all the way around. So the image extending past the trim to make sure that when we're cutting the magazine, because we're using um, as I sort of said before, it goes through the press, it goes to the folder, it goes onto the perfect binder, it gets trimmed at the very end on the perfect binder. There's all these steps that there's a little bit of error. So as much as we would love to say, yes, we cut perfectly on the line every single time, there's a margin of error there. 
and the bleed ensures that you don't get like a little sliver of white. Um, and then honestly, the biggest thing that I would say, um, especially with somebody doing a new publication is just be really ready before you send your files to the printer. Like you've proofread it, you've printed it on your printer at home, you've gone through it with a pen, you've had somebody else proofread it, be really comfortable with your files. Because once you send the files to us, and then we output a set of proofs, you catch a bunch of your own mistakes, or you decide you want to change something, it gets a lot more expensive to make changes at that point, we have to output new proofs, there's this communication, somebody has to reprocess those files, the first round of proofs is included in the cost of your job. But any edits after that end up it can add up really quickly. So someone can send changes, and it can be an additional say, you know, 600 bucks, really quickly on something that could have been caught at um, beforehand. So I just really encourage people to just be super thorough. Don't rush, don't panic and be like, I just need to get it off my plate. Take that extra day. I don't want to say be late with your files, but it's almost better to be a day late with your files and have made sure you've gone over them really, really well, rather than rushing them and having a lot of errors and then the extra charges afterwards. Great advice. And I would almost add a little piece to that advice, which is to say, not only look over your files really thoroughly yourself, but get a trusted advisor, someone who has a really good, keen, detailed eye to look over your content as well. And in a magazine, a professional magazine scenario, in most cases, you would have professional editors or uh, uh, writers or, or people who are professional wordsmiths who would go in and make sure everything is, is just so. But definitely for your projects, if you have an opportunity, get someone else to, to have a peek over it as well. Now you and I, Steph, both love print. <laughs> we are print nerds and we understand the vast possibilities for engagement offered by printed media. But maybe for, for students who are listening or for anyone else who is listening to this uh, kind of recording after the fact, what are some of the most interesting examples of customization or printed effects on printed projects? And that could be publications or otherwise. So are, is there anything really neat that you've seen that that maybe we can, can expand our minds as to what is possible with print? Yeah, I mean, I feel very fortunate. We work with so many good, talented clients. And a lot of it really just is good design. You know, we can have all the techniques in the world. You can fuss over one kind of paper versus another kind of paper and the shades and the textures and all these different things. But ultimately, good design looks great. You can have, you know, little add ons, like I said before, whether it's an emboss or a foil detail. Um, but when it's great photography, um, it's a, you know, very creative person that's done the work. I think that's honestly what makes us shine so well and makes things look so great is really the artistry that goes into it. Um, that's why I'm an account manager. I'm not that artist. I let everybody else be the artistic ones. And then I just help them bring it to life. Um, one thing I have seen, though, that I would call out is, and it's been hard because the pandemic has affected paper um, and our supply, but there was a big push before the pandemic on colored paper. Um, Mohawk came out with a line called Key Color. It's actually manufactured in Europe. Um, but I want to say there's 58 different colorful shades, like in all bright colors, not even rainbow colors, but just really trendy, interesting colors and having duotones printed on that. So that would be using 
two ink colors and then also using the paper color to sort of be part of the image. Um, it works really well if you're printing, say, like a silver ink and a black ink on a colored paper. It can look really, really beautiful. So I would love to see more colored papers start to come back um, once the paper supply chain smooths itself out. But for now, they're all, all the paper mills are focused on manufacturing white, bright paper. Yeah, fair enough. I guess we can't blame them. But man, no. how fun is colored paper? Right? And, yeah. so, and it's hard. So it was neat what Mohawk did with this key color line is they said we're only making, because it can get confusing, you know, what's available in what weight, what's available in this. And they said it's super simple. We're only making 110 pound cover and 80 pound text in all of these shades. And then it came in a little package and the package sort of had this neat color-coded die cutting that sort of gave you an idea of the different price points of the shades. And it was just a huge selection of colors. So I hope to see more of that come back. That's so fun. And I mean, thinking about the ways in which a magazine can help bring us in, if I were to flip through a magazine or a publication and all of a sudden there's a, a section or even a sheet of like some sort mm -hmm. of really uh, beautiful, colored paper with with really interesting printing and as you said like a duotone and a silver and a black i mean that that's going to draw me in so i think that that's such a neat example of a trend that i actually i've never heard before hmm. yeah and i think it's neat to be able to put in like you said usually like one signature of an interesting type of paper whether it's you know the comparison of the coded versus uncoded or doing it with a colored paper so my very last question for you, Steph, and then I'll open it up to the floor. If anyone has any questions, please get them ready. My last question for you, Steph, is where do you see publication printing heading in maybe one or five or 10 years? What are some of the overarching trends that students in this industry, whether it's magazine production and publishing specifically or kind of publishing and printing more generally, what should they be aware of? Um, so speaking to the, you know, the specific magazines that I've been talking about that we produce these niche sort of boutique publications, um, we've seen in the last few years, sales and printing volume of traditional newsstand magazines have gone down. In the pandemic, book printing and book sales have gone up. And I think these magazines kind of fit right in the middle. Um, I think we're seeing more and more of them. Our volume of magazine printing is definitely increasing. I think because we've sort of evolved to specialize in it too. And our sales reps do a great job getting themselves out there in the market. But I think people are still, even five to 10 years from now, still gonna have that value of having something tangible in their hand. Um, one of the profs when I was in GCM said that print is evolving in a way that um, it's no longer necessary. You know, you can read all this content online, you can read the news online, you can do these things online, but people still want it in the same way that candles are no longer necessary. You don't need a candle to light the room or to keep you warm or to sit by candlelight and write a letter. Yet, you know, they're still selling tons of candles and print is the same. It might not be 100% necessary, but there's still something nostalgic about it. There's something nice about the tactile piece in your hand. And I don't think that that's, you know, going anywhere. I hope that we can maintain the demand for it. Um, the paper supply is a huge challenge right now. Um, 
And a lot of the paper manufacturers are switching to packaging grades for their paper and downsizing the fine paper that they make for our type of printing. And I think it's definitely a threat to the industry um, that if we can't get the paper to print on it, that the demand will sort of go away. Um, so I'm hoping that we can maintain that, get through the time we're in right now, and then have these, you know, unique niche publications that people can find an interest. Maybe they hear about it on a social media platform, Kickstarter, TikTok, something like that. They hear about this really specific thing that they're interested in, and then they can go and subscribe to this specific niche publication and then have it show up in their mail. And we don't get very much stuff in our mailbox anymore. So it's pretty fun to see a beautifully printed magazine show up. I love magazine mail. It's my favorite type of mail. Absolutely. So good. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Steph. Um, does anyone have any questions? Ooh, Rachel's got one. Okay, Rachel. So you said, or you're asking, why did you get into this field and what was the most useful thing you learned from your time at TMU, formerly Ryerson University? Yes. Um, I guess, like I sort of touched on before, I love print. I love the feel of it. I love the, like, it's just beautiful. I was always the person that bought so many different journals from chapters, even though I didn't need another blank journal on the shelf. They're all down there. Um, but I've always loved it, but I'm not super creative. Like I could, you could ask me to lay out a calendar with like a photo and a grid, a photo and a grid, but I don't really have that, you know, creative design art director side of me. I wish I did. Um, so when I heard about this program at GCM, I read about it and went, yeah, that's exactly what I want to do. That's the technical side of it. We learned how paper was made, how ink was made, how PDFs are made and how they work in the background. And there was so much to it that I, it really opened my eyes. And then working, getting this job at Hemlock, I joked for a long time that it was really just the GCM program on steroids. Like it was literally all of the things that I learned at school and then in perfect application in a fast paced environment. Um, so it was very directly related to what I learned in school. So I guess to answer the what was the most useful thing, it was honestly so much, so much of the program applied. Um, even the things that we had to, you, most of you probably aren't GCM students, but in when I was in GCM, that you had to write these instrumentation reports. So it was like specific studies on how paper is made or like whether ink rubs a certain, like if you rub the ink, uh, rub resistance of ink and grain direction of paper and the green direction of paper was so annoying and you had to note it in all of your reports. <laughs> Turns out it's actually very important, especially in a magazine. If you want the magazine to lay, like we were looking at earlier, if you want it to lay flat like this, you want the green direction of the paper to be going in the same direction of the spine. Otherwise it's going to have a tendency to snap shut. And I never would have believed that green direction would be so relevant. So instrumental to the final magazine product. Who knew? Who knew? Mm -hmm. Grace. Presentation up, so it would be easier maybe to say my question. Absolutely. Uh, it's going to make sense when I typed it. I was just wondering, like, what's the amount of control that you have over advertisements? Like, I've been thinking about this as I've been working through this assignment of, like, um, 
as you were talking about earlier, like these tactile qualities that are missing in the digital aspect and why people love having these printed pieces. So um, I was even thinking about how advertisements could start incorporating, like, for example, like Ikea, if they wanted like a certain like tactile finish of like to kind of make it more enticing and, and always ads in general, I find them to be very ugly in magazines and look out of place. So I was just wondering what sort of control do you have over ads? Like, do people ever come to you and say like, oh, can you make this fit within your magazine's aesthetic? Hmm. It's a really interesting question. I would say it doesn't come up so much for us. I do have one magazine that's fairly ad heavy and they've asked about just doing gate folds like fold out pages to make you know instead of a two-page spread to you know fold it out wider and make a larger spread and we've quoted them for that um, as an option and then I imagine they would pass it on to their advertisers to say you know it's going to be an extra I don't know eight thousand dollars or ten thousand dollars to have this fold out and be an even larger ad Um, if it came up um, the magazine's definitely could communicate with the advertisers and then pass it to us to find out how much it might cost to add on something special. Um, But I feel like the, the cost of doing something interesting or different is probably significant enough that it wouldn't be worthwhile for the advertiser would be my guess. And I don't know a lot about, I don't even know if they still do it, but like when you used to flip through like, in style magazine and you could like fold out and like have the smelly perfume um little swatches i don't know if they still do that but like i imagine that was probably now that i think about it that was probably a huge premium for them to add on these scratch and sniff perfume pages so it would totally be possible but it's not something that i see um come up very often but it would it would just be a collaborative effort between the printer the middle client the publisher and then the advertiser that was working with the publisher yeah thank you thanks for asking your question grace um now that you mentioned that like do magazines ever incorporate those perfume ads anymore now that you say it like i've never i haven't seen one in many recent years no i don't i don't buy those magazines anymore so i couldn't i can't think of it but i did just think of something else that i we would potentially see, which I think would be a really great advertising opportunity, is if someone, say you bought this like ad space, like the inside front cover and the first page, you could do like a separate saddle stitched book, like maybe just a thin 16 page booklet and glue it into the front cover. So maybe you were like advertising sportswear or I don't know why I'm thinking of Herschel, like the bags and backpacks and stuff like that it's coming to mind but you could do you could put like a little mini catalog and like tip it into the inside of the book and have this like pull out separate catalog that I think would be a huge you know marketing opportunity Um, and that's all equipment that we would have that could be done you know in the process to tip um, a little catalog in and to be a pull out so I think that'd be a really cool advertising opportunity yeah good thinking All right, we have a question coming in from Claire. Claire says, I'm wondering, regarding publications like Drift, which retail for $24 to $30, can you speak to the economics of it all? It's just such a big jump from traditional magazines. How did this shift occur and is it sustainable? Wow, good questions. We're getting into the economics of it all. (laughs) Such a good question. Um, I mean, 
I don't, I can't completely speak to their like business model and like whether they're making money on this or not. But I think people are seeing it and seeing their spend in the same way that they would buy a book. You know, they're not necessarily seeing it like the $3.99 magazine you might pick up while you're grabbing your groceries. So I think it's technically they're magazines, they're periodical publications, but I think people just see the value in it um, and think that it's worthwhile. I would also say some of the magazines that I pick up um, at chapters, like the Magnolia Home one, that's just like a magazine, I think it's $11.99 or $13.99 and it's super ad-based. So when I look at it and go, okay, yeah, some of the nicer magazines are getting up into that, you know, 10 to $15 range. Would I pay 20 to $30 for something that's like this premium and this specific for my interests? Yeah, I think it checks out. Um, but again, I don't know, um, you know, how much, you know, how successful these people are that are publishing these magazines. Um, Racket, Houdinki, Triple Zero, um, Drift, those are all ones that we've been printing for five or six years, quite a long time. So presumably they're very successful and not just a passion project. Um, but I, yeah, so I think when you get you get your customer base, you get a following, a lot of these are also US-based magazines um, and there's just a really large audience. Um, whether it would be sustainable, you'd need a pretty large audience, I think, for a Canadian magazine to keep going. You want to be printing, you know, 5,000 copies minimum um, to probably get the unit cost low enough that you're making a good chunk of money and um, keeping it going. Because there's also all the production and writing costs and, you know, you don't just turn out a magazine in a day. So there's a lot that goes into it for sure. Yeah, that's a great question, Claire. And I, I tend to um, to agree with Steph, again, just coming from a book printing perspective, is that these periodicals that are really high-end and really niche are presenting themselves in the market more like books than magazines traditionally. So they're, they're really hyper-specific and they are able to attract an audience in the look and the feel and the availability and the timing and all of these key pieces and key decisions that you make kind of in the front end in the business of magazines to get out to an audience that that will pay that premium price it's yeah it's a really interesting space that we're in now because i i think that magazines are kind of the bridge between newspapers i mean different function but between newspapers and books in terms of longevity but then these very niche high-end expensive magazine publications toe the line between or exist between current magazines as they as we all know and love them and books so it's kind of the spectrum and the spectrum of value that customers see and experience and will pay for yeah and i think like we're seeing in many ways like the increase in luxury products especially this hodinky watch magazine um and the triple zero porsche magazine like people like to show off that they have expensive stuff and they like expensive stuff. So it's almost like, like a prestige thing to like have these sitting on your coffee table. It's no longer just having like architectural digest. You want to have this like bougie watch magazine sitting on your <laughs> coffee table. On your bougie coffee table beside your bougie candle that you don't need. Exactly. 
All right. Well, Steph, it has been an absolute pleasure to see you and to hear all about uh, what you do and help kind of shed some light on the world of publication printing for everyone in this class and beyond. So thank you so much. You're welcome. It was so great to talk to you. And I really appreciate everybody's really thoughtful quest questions. Mm -hmm.